All right, before we hop into this text today, um, just a, a, a word as it's the end of July, and uh, a friend of mine said, uh, pumpkin spice season is upon us. <laughs> um, so here we go. Um, no, but seriously, as we think about the fall, um, September will be here fast, and uh, one of the, the, you know, the realities of the 100 parties, uh, Pentecost comes uh, usually in late May, and, um, and we, we respond to the coming of the Spirit by trying to reflect what happened in Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit showed up, uh, the people of God immediately were in each other's houses celebrating and, and sharing meals together. And so summer here is wonderful, but it's a little complicated. And uh, you have a lot of guests coming to visit you. Uh, and then there's obviously times in the summer where we're you know, often uh, going on our own trips. And so it's, it's a little bit of an interesting, you know, a lot of my friends pastor in places like, you know, like Detroit, for example, and they just have no one all summer. Everybody's gone every weekend. You know, here it's just a little bit of a revolving door, and sometimes you have people with you and whatever. Um, and so it's an interesting time of year. And so we've really leaned into the parties and just said, hey, we want to still be together, even though we recognize that the rhythms uh, are going to be, uh, maybe they may be a little more complicated. Um, but come September, uh, our community groups uh, re uh, recommit to, to regular gathering, uh, being together. And, uh, and so that's going to be, you're going to hear a lot about that uh, in the upcoming weeks, especially the first couple weeks of September, if you're not part of a CG uh, community group. Uh, but what I want to put in your, uh, the bug in your ear right now is if you are considering being a community group leader, like if you're actually thinking, man, I might be ready uh, to, to lead a group. Um, there's a couple ways that that could happen. The, the best one would be this. If you're in a community group, talk to your community group leader about it. And, and just ask them, what, what do you think about that? You, what do you think about me taking that step? Uh, because what your community group leader might say is, man, why don't we take this coming year and you partner with me a little bit more and get some, get some experience leading the group and maybe, maybe think next, next year. Uh, or your community group leader might be like, no, I think the same thing, but let's, let's do it. Um, and your community group leader can get you, get them in touch, get you in touch with me in regard to um, uh, taking that taking that next step of, of, of leading a group. Uh, we we would love to have uh, some new groups this this fall. We have a, uh, a couple in the works. Uh, but if you're thinking I, I, I'd like to take that step, man, we'd love to love to talk to you. If you're not part of a community group, uh, you can just email uh, the church office or you can email groups at sojourntravers.com and uh, that information will uh, will get to us. And so uh, be looking forward to it. If, you're, if you've not been in a community group, you're, you're, you are missing out. Uh, it is, uh, it's, it's the way, um, you know, sometimes people refer to Sunday mornings as air war. It's like, you know, there's like a plane flying overhead and dropping bombs and sometimes the bomb hits you and sometimes the bomb doesn't hit you. Uh, but community groups is more like uh, ground war. It's like person to person. Somebody knows you and sees you and loves you. And when you're not there, they know you're not there. And that dynamic can just not exist on a Sunday like it can uh, in, in a small group. So um, keep, keep your eyes open for how to get into one if, if you're not. And that will be that information will be flowing your way in the next couple of weeks. Okay, so if you've been around here, you, you know that we're in a study uh, walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, several weeks ago, we got to Matthew chapter 5 and, and slowed ourselves right down. Um, but over the course of those weeks, I think it's been like nine weeks or something, every single Sunday, our scripture reading has been Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 16, every Sunday. And so I'm kind of expecting that you have it memorized by now. Um, but we, we, we've been reading those verses a lot. And most of these weeks, we've been working our way through uh, these statements uh, called the Beatitudes. Uh, usually, the, uh, your Bible might have subtitles that call these Beatitudes. But they're all those blessed statements where Jesus is referring to blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, etc. 
And we've spent the last two weeks looking at that. And uh, if you're interested, uh, you can go back and all those sermons are available on our podcast or uh, on YouTube and you can take a look at those. But what, what, you know, to summarize it, in Matthew chapter 5, it, it's, it, what Jesus starts off with is he's tapping into this desire, this, this human condition that we all want to be happy. That, that, that we all long for that. That it's like baked into the human experience in the world as it is. We, we all want to be happy. And we're not just talking about fluffy feelings. We're talking about deep satisfaction. And so we've suggested over these weeks that maybe the best way to think about how Jesus is talking here is to actually use that word blessed and think of the word flourishing. And that Jesus is making a statement. He's actually looking around and he's like, flourishing, is that, is that, that person's poor in spirit. Flourishing of the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are those who are meek. And it feels like an upside down kingdom, but Jesus is revealing to us the good life from his perspective. And every one of those postures, every one of those realities that's pointed to uh, over the course of those first 10 or, 10 or 12 verses, Jesus is actually saying there's something significant about living your life that way. Uh, for example, we don't think that mourning would be good. Who, who wants to be a mourner? But, but Jesus is actually saying, flourishing are the mourners. Why? Because they're actually willing to admit that the world's not right. They're actually willing to look around and say, those things should never have happened. That tragedy should have never happened. And they mourn it. And Jesus says, that's a great situation to be in because you actually recognize that the world is not right. And so these beatitudes, they're not divine blessings poured out on you. They're not commandments. They, they're, they're, they're statements. They're congratulatory statements where Jesus is looking at individual people and saying, that is a flourishing life. As we went through them, we got up to the pure in heart. And we saw that the pure in heart was kind of the first one that was actually like positive. And it's talking about a heart that's like genuine, that's genuine all the way down. And one of the outcomes of someone who's pure in heart is that they're actually willing to believe they're actually willing to trust. And so Jesus, you can see, Jesus says, flourishing are the pure in heart because they have a genuineness to their heart. They're actually willing to, to assume the best. They're not naive, but they're willing to trust. Boy, if you're a person who's willing to trust and you run into the good news of the gospel, you're in a good place. And Jesus knows it. And he says, flourishing are the pure in heart. And then last week, we, we rounded out by add, uh, putting together the peacemakers and the persecuted, kind of all in, in one bucket. And just looked at the fact that it's like, if, if you're pure in heart, if, if there's this recognition of, of the nature of, of the world, um, boy, Jesus says, those who care about making peace uh, and those who actually are navigating persecution, uh, they're, they're flourishing too. And, uh, and, that, and that rounded out these, these statements called the Beatitudes. And so, if you have run to Jesus, here, here's a way to think about this. If you have run to Jesus, he is going to dramatically change you. He is, he's going to change you all the way down to the studs, all the way down. And starting in verse 11, Jesus, we mentioned this briefly last week, but Jesus starts using the word you. And so all the way through the first 10 verses, Jesus never uses the word you. He's just saying mourners, flourishing are the mourners, poor in spirit, flourishing are the poor in spirit. But then he gets to verse 11 and he starts saying you. And so verses 11 and 12 kind of function like a little bit of a bridge as Jesus begins to turn the focus to the followers that were sitting right or standing right in front of him. And he says, blessed are you. Um, and, and so, you know, the first, the first are pointing to a flourishing life. And then verses 11 through 16 are pointing out the distinct realities of being Jesus' disciple. So today, as we close out this section, we're going to see that Jesus says, if you are one who has run to him, then it's going to have a profound impact 
on how you interact with the world. Jesus moves from the Beatitudes, verses 11 and 12 function like a bridge, and then he moves into what some call the you are's. And so he starts off with the Beatitudes, and then he moves into the you are's. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Um, First of all, the the, the Greek construction here, and I know that's not sexy or exciting for anybody, but listen, the the, the Greek construction of these verses actually has something to to say for us. It offers a couple significant clues about what Jesus is doing. He starts using this word, you. And this word in the Greek is, it's plural, so it's, uh, some people would say it's, it's you folks, or it's y'all. It's you plural. So Jesus is, is talking about the group, and it's emphatic. In the Greek, it's emphatic because it's placed at the head of the sentence, and the fact that it's there at all. The, the nature of the Greek language, you would not need to add this pronoun. That, that, that when it's written the way it's written, it has it inferred in the actual word itself. So the fact that Matthew added it and added it at the front of the sentence, it's meant to be emphatic, that Jesus is like accenting the word you, y'all, you folks. And so it's, it's plural and it's emphatic. Next, he says you are. Jesus makes declarations, not directives. You, if you're a, a grammar person, these are indicatives, not imperatives. G- Jesus is stating facts, not commands. You are. You are. And that that is quite significant. You could maybe translate this. Y'all already are. Y'all already are. That's what the Greek is putting in front of us. And what we can take from that is major identity implications for the followers of Jesus. You know, many of you know that in our logo, there is a thumbprint in our logo. And the reason there's a thumbprint in our logo is because we actually think Jesus has a lot to say about your identity. He has a lot to say about who you are. And when we get a statement like this from Jesus where he says, you are, it's this this reminder or this invitation to recognize that Jesus has already made us something. That he's already made us that. And then often the invitation to us is, be who you are. Live out who you are. And so when we talk about identity around here, that's what we're reminded, is that Jesus has given us the identity Our job is to live out of it. It's not try to earn the identity. It's not try to live up. It's it's live out of it. It, Jesus has already given it. And as we see this this language here, you are. It's the message of the gospel that if you've run to Jesus, it's this scandalous message that in spite of your sin, uh, in, in spite of the fact that you could never earn it, you don't deserve it at all, if you have the humility of heart to run to Jesus, if you recognize that you have need, all you need is need, If you come running to him, then he makes you into his people, and you get to live out of it. So you already are, and then he says the, the word the, you are the. This is a definite article. He doesn't say you are a salt. He doesn't say you are a light. He says you are the salt. You are the light. And this is scandalous. This is scandalous because Jesus is actually saying, he's looking at his followers and pointing right at them, you all, you all already are the salt, the light. Jesus is actually suggesting that his followers are it, that there's not another source of what the kind of stuff Jesus is talking about. There's not another source. It's like his followers are the salt. His followers are the light. Those who have been radically changed by the gospel are it. 
You know, our, our church, we have a, a, a global missions uh, effort that we, uh, that, we, that we are involved in, and then we have local uh, ministries and mercy ministries that, that we're involved in. And we often sometimes talk about them, and we make them, we distinguish them by thinking of, of missions as more as word, as more as proclamation, where there's individual people who are going around the world and preaching the gospel. And then when we look at mercy, sometimes that's like feeding the hungry or, or clothing the naked or h- helping out with those, those more practical needs. And, and one of the things that we say sometimes is that we prioritize funding towards the global mission. And part of the reason for that is that if we are not the ones who are proclaiming the message of Jesus, then there's nobody else who does. If, if we don't feed the hungry, there are governmental programs. There are other organizations that, that, that feed the hungry. And I think that that distinction is helpful, that this gospel proclamation is on the shoulders of the church. But Jesus here seems to be saying, I want, I want your hands in both pots, that you, you, you are it. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the earth. Or you are the light of the world. You are the, not a. Both matter, both proclamation and service, both, both missions and mercy. And he says, my people are going to go about this in a way that it's unique. You are the, not a. So, boy, what does it mean to already be the salt of the earth, the light of the world? Well, just one more thing before we try to, I mean, it's a good question. Just one more thing before we get there. Jesus says that y'all already are the salt of the earth. Y'all already are the light of the world. Those phrases are just as scandalous at this moment. It's kind of audacious that Jesus would say it, that Matthew would write it down. Think, I mean, this is a, a small band of people sitting or standing on a hill in Palestine. This is not, this is not a significant group of people. This is not the Roman Senate that has gathered to make declarations about how they're going to continue their world domination. This is a small band of people, former fishermen, a carpenter, and Jesus has the audacity to look at them and say, you all already are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is a global mentality that Jesus is seeding into the minds of his people right off the bat. Well, what ends up happening? The witness of those individuals ends up getting recorded into something that we refer to as the New Testament. That's the the second half of our Bibles. And you know what? That that message that's been retained in in the New Testament, do you know what's happened with that message? It has made it all the way from that little mountain in Palestine to Traverse City, Michigan. The gospel has gotten all the way to the ends of the earth. It has gotten to all seven continents. When Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, it sounds crazy in 30 AD. But here we are in 2023, and it's like, oh, I guess Jesus does know what he's talking about. This, This actually happened. It actually has scattered all over the globe. And so, you know, it was mentioned already, but we're offering this class this coming fall called Perspectives, and it's a class on on missions and trying to get a deeper understanding of this invitation that Jesus gives to his people to think globally, 
That means across the street in your neighborhood, and it means across uh, the ocean. And Jesus here looks at his followers early on, and has the, he doesn't say you're the salt of Palestine, you're the salt of Galilee, you're the salt of Israel. He says you're the salt of the earth. <laughs> you're the light of the world. Pretty incredible. So what does it mean to already be the salt of the earth or the light of the world? Well, these, these two words, salt and light, you know, one of the challenges that you can have sometime in, in the responsibility of, of teaching regularly is that you run into passages that people have just heard one million times. Like if you grew up in the church, uh, you, you probably know this passage, you've probably heard it. Um, some of you maybe here have never, never heard it before, but many of you have heard it before. And so it's, it kind of can be like, boy, what novel things can we come up with to, to talk about this? And you know, the truth is that, that some of this stuff is just, it's good to rehearse. Maybe you've heard these things uh, dozens of times, maybe you've never heard them at all, but let me, let me try to at least uh, unpack and maybe unpack for you again uh, the, 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 um, what Jesus is inviting us to think about when he uses uh, salt, salt and light. So first, salt. Uh, in Jesus' time, salt had two primary effects. Uh, it, would, it would preserve and it would flavor. So first, it would preserve. Salt stemmed the decay. You know, they did not have refrigerators. They did not have freezers. And so if you had meat, the way that you would preserve meat is you would pack it in salt. You, 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 would, you would pack it in the salt. And this meat that would normally decay very, very fast in a climate, any climate, but in their climate especially, the salt stems the decay. The, the salt preserves. It slows it down. It's still decaying, but the salt slows it down. It, it's preservation. You know, uh, so an application for us then, or a way to say what, what would that mean for Jesus' followers if they heard him say, uh, you are salt. When, when you see something falling apart, do you run to it or do you run away from it? You know, when you see somebody's life falling apart, their personal life's falling apart, their work life's falling apart, their finances are falling apart, their relationship, everything's falling apart. Most of us are like, Get me out of here. I don't want to be part of that at all. That's going to splash on me. I've seen this story a bunch of times. Like, I would rather not get my hands dirty with that story as it falls apart. Same thing with communities. When you see brokenness in communities, when you see brokenness in companies or in educational systems or in governmental systems, it's, it's a frequent response to want to run away from it. But Jesus here, by using this illustration of salt, is actually looking at his people and saying, I want you to go towards it. I want you to penetrate it. I want you to be there to preserve it. I want you to stem the decay. I want you to be in the mix. What one commentator says that salt is for food, Jesus is saying, you know, just as salt is for food, Christians are for the world. That, that, that's part of why we're here is to be this preserving agent, to have this role of like stemming the decay, fighting against the destruction, actually running towards the things that are falling apart. Now this is somewhat controversial because Jesus is critiquing the world. If Jesus looks at the world and says, it needs salt. Now, maybe the cook at your house wouldn't be offended if you said, this needs some salt. But I think a lot of times, the, the cook does take that a little offensively. It's like, oh, you don't like the way I season this? 
Jesus is looking at the world and saying, it's, it's falling apart. It's, it's decaying. The, the world needs salt. J Jesus is making a critique of the world as it is. Jesus is not suggesting that we have to try to keep the remnants of our grandpa's generation, the golden years, the good old days, you know, back when I was a kid. Like, that, that is, that, Jesus is not saying, let's bring the 1950s back. Because the 1950s were a long time after Jesus was actually saying this. What, what he's indicating is that things have a tendency to fall apart. You know, have you noticed this? He's tapping into that reality that in the world as it is, things tend to fall apart. Uh, an example, uh, your, your body. Have you, have you noticed this? I'm, I'm 47, and every year, there's just a little bit more stuff going on that make you curious about what, what, what the future holds. Uh, a friend of ours works in an orthopedic office, and they, they, they have people come in all the time, and they'll be like, man, I don't know, I've been, playing, I've been playing basketball forever, and now my knee is just really messed up. And she'll say to them, how, how old are you? And typically, they'll be like, 40. And she'll be like, well, that's why. <laughs> that's why this has never happened to you before, because you turned 40. Like, this is what it, your, bodies, your bodies fall apart. It's the nature of the world in which we live. Your relationships. Boy, your relationships take a ton of energy and effort to maintain. The, 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 you know, it's so easy for things to fragment your friendships, your family, your, your, your coworkers. The systems of the world. The educational systems, the governmental systems, the economic systems, they tend to fade. They tend to fall apart. And Jesus is not talking about some window of time like that was the good old days. He's saying, look around. Stuff tends to fall apart, and I want you, my people, to stem the decay. I want you to be part of this process of holding it together, not wishing for the good old days, but actually stemming the decay that is present in the world as it is. The people of God are part of the way that the good things are preserved and that the bad things are slowed. Um, so I, yeah, I just, I just started this uh, hydration supplement called Element. It's spelled L-M-N-T. It's called Element. And it has this super high salt content. Super high. It's like a thousand milligrams or something like that. A ton of salt. And when you taste it, it tastes really salty. And the slogan for this company is, stay salty. And I saw that slogan and I'm like, well, that was Jesus' slogan first. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's exactly what he is calling his people to be, is to be salt in the earth and to stay salty. So, preserver. It, it, one of its roles was to preserve. The other one, spent a little bit less time on this, but was, was flavor. The salt brings out the goodness. You know, part of what the people of God are invited to realize is that God has created an incredible world even while it suffers from the effects of sin. Even while this world has this tendency to fall apart, it is such a great world. And it's even better when you start to taste all of God's good gifts. And so you know, we've talked about these things before, but as, as a child of God, you, know, you can actually take a bite of an apple and just say, is it not incredible that God created a world in which something like this grows from a seed that goes into the dirt and dies, and then over the course of a few years comes out of the ground, sprouts up, and eventually produces this, 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 this piece of juicy goodness, and God created me in a way 
that actually has taste buds and teeth that can bite into that piece of fruit and taste all of these incredible flavors. And there's not just one apple. There's all kinds of apples. And there's not just one fruit. There's all kinds of fruit. Think, think about relationships. That God built a world in which you can experience the kind of emotions and connections that you can have with other people. Even in a broken world. Even in a screwed up world. You know, yesterday we were at a birthday party for Anna, uh, for Anna Ballard and out at uh, Ash Road Beach. And like this, the comments were made several times. Like, this is a perfect day. I mean, you were sitting out there and it's like, who needs the Bahamas? Like, this is incredible. And it just was like a 30-minute drive. And you know, the sun, and the, the, it was windy early, but then the wind dropped off. And it was just incredible out there. That's in a broken world. Do, do, do we recognize the gifts that God has poured out on creation? Do, do we actually recognize that we get to be part of bringing out the goodness? Well, one of the ways that this could happen is for actually for us to engage with God's good gifts the way he's designed them so that we don't abuse them. When you think about food or work or sex or drink, money, all of these things are good gifts from God. But what do we tend to do as a society? We tend to abuse all of them. We tend to overuse them or misuse them. And we take God's good gifts and we distort them. But to be salt in the earth in, in regard to flavor is actually to interact with God's good gifts, to celebrate God's good gifts, to use God's gifts in a way that actually reflect how good they are. And so when we drink, we don't overdrink. When we eat, we don't overeat, except at the party of the beach, maybe. But we should, you know, we, we don't overeat. We, we, we don't overwork, but we don't underwork. Like we actually engage with these good gifts and we use them in a way to where at the end of that time, it's just like, Man, that was good. Man, that was so good. And that then gets to be on display. I mean, maybe, maybe you recognize that around us in our culture, um, there is a growing sentiment that life is boring, that life is meaningless, that life is, is bland, it's empty, it's pointless. And as the people of God, we can actually come into this world and we have this reality that it is broken, but we're not pessimists. Because God's actually given this world to us. He's called us to be co-regents, to, to reign here with him. And then we know where history is headed. We know, we know where history is headed to a remade world where things are even better than they are now. And so we can be realists. It's a broken world. But we should also be full of this willingness to, to bring out the goodness, to actually show the beauty and the joy that life can offer. The people of God are to be a source of flavor. And one of our values is the value of curiosity. That's one of the ways that we can bring out this, this uh, flavor of the world. Are you curious? You a learner? Are you, are you, like throughout your life, are you eager to experience new things, to meet new people? to taste new tastes. This is part of the way that we as the people of God have a spirit of curiosity and a spirit of joy. It's another way in which we can stay salty. Well, the second illustration, so salt's the first one. The other one that Jesus references is light. Light had one primary effect. It reveals. That, that, that's what light does. Light reveals. Its primary work is not to preserve. It's not to flavor, necessarily. But throughout the Bible, light is often referring to the truth. 
In, in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, that's a, 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 that's a number of times the, the prophet Isaiah refers to light and connects it to the idea of truth. And the New Testament picks up on that and is frequently connecting light with truth. And so when Jesus looks at his people and he says, you all already are the light of the world. What, what, what Jesus is saying is, you, you've, got, you've got the truth. If you've come running to me, then the lights have been turned on. Your, your eyes have been opened. And you, you've got this sense of, of, of the, the truth has been revealed to you, and now you can actually reveal the truth to the world. You, you can actually be my witnesses, as he'll say a few years later. You get to reveal the truth of what is actually happening. One of my favorite ways to talk about the gospel is that the gospel is, is all about reality. The gospel wants to tell you the real, real. The gospel wants to bring the, you know, pull the shades off, pull the curtains off, pull the covers off, turn the lights on. The gospel wants to tell you the real condition of you, the real condition of the world, the real direction of this world, the real hope of eternity. All of these things are in the category of the truth of reality. And so that means that we are about revealing the truth about God, about ourselves, about the world. There is a little tie-in, though, with the sense of flavoring, because the, the, you know, this means the truth of, of beauty, too. The, the, the beauty of God, the beauty of his gifts, the beauty of life. Now, this statement's also controversial, because if Jesus is looking at the world and saying, this world needs light, what's he indicating? That there's blindness here. That there's darkness here. That the world is stumbling around. That sin and rebellion have brought a dark cloud into the world in which we live. And so Jesus, again, by using this illustration, is critiquing the condition of the world in which we find ourselves. And he's actually having the audacity to say, something's broken here. The lights aren't working right. There's blindness. There's stumbling. There's rebellion, there's lostness, there's need. This world needs light. And Jesus tells his followers that they are both the salt and the light of the world. So let me just close with, with some, some takeaways here. Um, Jesus' followers, this is one of the takeaways, Jesus' followers will be a distinct subculture. Je Jesus says this by, by using salt and light. He says it a million other ways too. The New Testament is constantly indicating this. It, it, it refers to our church's name as Sojourn, and it refers to Christians as Sojourners, Peter does. And that, that means that you are, uh, this is not your home, you're on, a, you're on a trip, but you're here for a short stay. And so if you're here on vacation right now, you're sojourning in Traverse City. But the Bible would actually say we're all sojourning in this world as it is. That we're all on a journey, it's just, we're, we're, this is a short stay. This is a part of the journey, this life. And the Bible calls us sojourners, indicating that this is not our home. That the condition of the world as it is doesn't fit us. That, it, that, that we, we are part of a different culture. We're part of a different kingdom than the kingdom that is reigning in the here and now. Uh, one, in one of the uh, epistles, we, we actually find out that we're referred to as a peculiar <laughs> A peculiar people. And that's not because we wear weird clothes or eat weird food. It's because we live a different way. That's Jesus' intention, is that we are actually subculture, that the way we're going about life should be different in some significant ways. 
And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to drive a weird car or that we live in the woods. It, it just simply means that, the, that there's like these fundamental realities of how we see the world and how we interact with the world that reveal we have a different king. We, 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 we are living for a different kingdom. We are salt and light. And we live different because we actually are different. Uh, Jesus' followers uh, preserve, flavor, and reveal, which means acts of goodness, words of truth, and lives of beauty. And so it's, it's, it's just it's on display. That, that, that's the indication. We'll talk about that more in a second. But it, it's, it's on display for the world to see. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with a life that is full of acts of goodness, acts of mercy, words of truth, and lives of beauty? Now, you might say, okay, Matt, well, this is fine to point these things out, but how? Like, what do we do? Give us, give us the blueprint. What, what, what are these things that make us a distinct subculture? What are these acts of goodness or words of truth or lives of beauty? Well, we might touch on them here over the next few minutes, but let me say more broadly, that's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount's about. That's exactly what Jesus does with the next two, two and a half chapters. He, he talks about relationships, and he talks about sex, and he talks about money, and he talks about power, and he, talk, he, he, he touches on all of these things, and he says, here's what you think, this is what you've been told, I'm telling you it's something other than that. This is what my people look like. This is how we navigate that subject or that issue. This is how and why we do what we do. And so we're going to be tackling that uh, in th th this coming fall. And, you know, I would say for all of us, it's probably a good idea for, for us to, uh, to buckle up. But, you know, a, a specific that we could point to today would be this idea if salt is to engage, if salt is to permeate, just as salt is for food, the, you know, uh, Christians are for the world, then one of the realities is, is this, we're, we're called to be servants. We are called to be servants. Now, now, some of us, and I, you know, I, I find myself experiencing this often, I'm pretty good at signing up for shifts to serve. You know, put me on for that hour and a half. I'll, I'll be there to serve, to serve for that 90 minutes, or you know, for that shift, or for that slot. Or for... The invitation for the people of God is to recognize that we have been made into servants. We don't just serve, we are servants. And a way to think about that is there's lenses by which we see the world. And so as we walk through the world, we walk through the world with a servant heart. We don't have to be scheduled to help. We don't have to be signed up to help. Like you, you can help your neighbor just because you're helping your neighbor. You're living as a servant. You're not filling a time slot. And it's a way in which you recognize this identity that Jesus has given you and you live out of it. You all already are the salt of the earth. Live up to that. Live out of that. That's the invitation. You know, the healthiest, uh, I was sharing this this morning at prayer time, uh, but, but the healthiest, you know, as I think over these last maybe 13 or 14 years, as, as Sojourn uh, has had a, 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 a kind of a revitalization, I guess you might say, my, my favorite season, and I actually think the healthiest season of our church, was, was a window of time where we were so, uh, our, our mercy ministry was so decentralized. We had a few things that we would do annually, 
where we organized them as a congregation and we would, you would sign up with us and we would kind of lead the charge. But there was a window of time where the majority of our community groups had, had, had bought into the idea that we're servants in the world. And our community groups, either together or individually, were, were serving in Traverse City. And during that window of time, I was having leaders of various nonprofit ministries or organizations in our city come up to me every once in a while and be like, Matt, I just want to thank you. Uh, you know, I, I just love that Sojourn promotes our ministry and that Sojourn cares about what we do. And I'm like, I, the one time, I had never even heard of their organization. And, it, it, and their association was Sojourn sending us people. And the beauty of that was, it wasn't, it wasn't Sojourn as a church or as an organization sending them people. It was, it was Sojourn on the move. It was decentralized and free. And it was just our congregation had bought into the idea that us using our time and our resources at this, uh, at this property, but then in the community, that that's, that's God's good way. And then, you know, COVID hit. And it changed a lot of people's priorities. It changed a lot of our calendars. And I don't think we've quite recovered it yet. But boy, it's something that we should pray for, is a return of that decentralized, kind of free agent, scattered serving. You know, there's an illustration about Christians that it's like they're kind of like manure, that when they're all together, they stink. But when they get spread out, they make everything grow. And it's like, that's, maybe this is what Jesus is talking about with that salt. Like, spread it around, man. Like, let's get out there and be part of what God is doing uh, in, in the world. So, uh, preserve, flavor, reveal, acts of goodness, words of truth, lives of beauty. <clears throat> Do you know what might come of all that? This might be a little surprising in our Western sitting, setting. Jesus' followers will face persecution. If you live the way that Jesus is talking about right here, you are going to face persecution. Now you might say, who's going to get upset about serving a meal? You're right. There's not very many people that are going to get upset, serving about a, upset about you serving a meal. But if they do the deep dive into what church you go to, into what your church believes about the Bible, if it's the role of light where our job is to actually reveal the truth, not just the truth about ourselves, but the truth about ourselves, the truth about the world, the truth about who God is, the truth about sin. We will face persecution. Uh, did you notice verses 11 and 12? Do you notice the first place that Jesus starts using the word you? Verses 11 and 12 of Matthew chapter 5 say this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. He, he, he starts off the use of you by saying persecution's on the way. And then it's like, you, know what, you want to know why? Because you're salt and light. Because you're out there stemming the decay. Because you're out there actually having the audacity to say something's wrong with the world, it needs salt. And you actually have the audacity to say, I know you don't think so, but you're, you're, you're actually, you're blind. Spiritually, you're blind. Like the world is stumbling around in darkness. And Jesus says, if you're going to live that kind of life, persecution is going to come. Have you noticed the fury that Jesus can produce in some people? Have you noticed that just bringing him up or bringing up the gospel, 
can just bring incredible levels of anger and just almost like like seething. I, I've, I've had it happen with people when they find out I'm a pastor. They might ask a few more clarifying questions like, what do I believe as a pastor? But then as I get down to the clarity of like, this is what I believe about the message of the gospel, that this is its wide open invitation to run to Jesus. And that if you do that, he will rescue you. And if you don't, then that actually means that you're still separated from God. And you're actually, um, your, your sin has consequences. That, that, that message of Jesus can bring out incredible anger or frustration from individual people. Have you ever wondered why that is? It's often because of this. If Jesus' claims are true, then you lose control of your life else's claims. Like, you know, LeBron James might want to say he's the best basketball player ever. Who cares? Who cares if he's right or wrong? All the other religious leaders, they make all kinds of advice about how to live life, but none of them have the audacity to say, I am. None of, the, none of them have the audacity to say, unless you come to me, you cannot go to the Father. The claims of Jesus are unique in the world, and so he brings a unique response. If Jesus' claims are true, then you lose control of your life, and there's, there's two options. It, it, it's come and trust him, or reject that to your own peril. If someone is actually hearing those words, you can understand why they have a visceral response. And if you don't believe me, and you look around, you're like, ah, I don't see that on my street. Read the New Testament. Read the Gospels. The people in the Gospels responded to Jesus like this. They either quit their jobs and they were like, he's everything and we're with him. Or they wanted to kill him. It's like the responses to Jesus are, I mean, they're exaggerated because they were actually hearing his claims. One of the great tragedies of Western culture is that we've just had enough. We've just had enough to where it's familiar, but we don't realize what he's saying. We don't feel the weight of what he's saying. And so we have all of these people who have casual relationships with Jesus. And in history, that's unheard of. Because the claims of Jesus mean that you actually lose control of your life. And if that's what you're going to go out there and actually say is true, then persecution is going to come. And it's not just going to come from the left politically. It's going to come from the right and from the left. It's going to come from people who think, you know, how dare you be that kind to, the, to the, those who've wronged you? How dare you be that kind to the rebels and to the sinners? Jesus got that criticism. How dare you eat with those people? That's going to dirty you up. So criticism from the right. And then criticism from the left. How dare you judge? How dare you say that this is right or this is wrong? The criticism comes from everywhere, from all directions, if you're actually going to be the light that Jesus is talking about here. People do not like to hear that they have a need. People do not like to hear that they are blind. Especially if they realize, especially if they realize what that means. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus actually seems to indicate here that it's like, that, that's the, you know, in verse 12, it's like, that's how the prophets are treated. And guess what you are? In the New Testament, if you've run to Jesus, you're a prophet now. That's, that's your role. And Jesus is like, this is what they do to prophets. So if you're going to have the audacity to be salt and light, uh, you know, buckle up. Uh, it's it's going to come. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So I, I know this is sobering, but this is what the Bible actually says. What I think Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes in this, in this text is actually, buckle up, but stop, 
whine about it. Don't whine about it. I'm telling you now. Don't whine about it. He says that, that you're going to get reviled. Like, don't, don't worry about it. You don't need to get your underwear on a bunch. You don't need to go sit around and be like, oh, we're Christians and we're so persecuted. Oh, this is... No, just like, it's part of the deal. It, you, this is what you're signing up for. It's part of the journey. If you are going to be salt and light, persecution is going to come. But let's be careful. Okay? Could we, could we not miss this phrase? In verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed or flourishing are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Uh, what's the next three words? On my account. Uh, literally, that is because of me. You, you, it is because of me, not because of you. It's because of me. So you might be getting a lot of persecution because you're clueless. You might be getting a lot of uh, persecution because you're tactless, because you're walking around at Cherry Festival with a sandwich board over your shoulders saying that gay people are going to go to hell. That's going to bring you some persecution. And let me make a suggestion. It probably should bring you some persecution. And I don't think verse 11 qualifies for you. (laughs) He's actually saying, when you are persecuted on my account, when you're persecuted for me, some of us are getting persecution because we are tactless. Listen, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, this is what it says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. And everybody's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Or as a meddler. This this Greek word meddler, it, it means to be a busybody. It means to be a gossip. It means to be putting yourself in places that you don't belong. It means entering into conversations that aren't your conversation to have. It means walking around at a parade with a sandwich board over you, making these terrible declarations that are out of context and they're unfair. And if you're facing persecution for that, Peter says, let none of that, don't don't, don't let that happen. If you're being persecuted because you're a murderer, well, like you, you deserve it. If you're being persecuted because you're a liar or an evildoer, you deserve it. If you're being persecuted because you're a meddler, you deserve it. But guess what? You can be genuine salt and light. You can be faithful to Jesus' teaching of the Bible. You can actually reveal that sin is real and that sin has consequences. And if you don't run to Jesus, you actually are going to live your life, not just this, but for eternity, apart from him. And if you're going to teach that message, the message of the Bible, that persecution is going to come. And Jesus says, in that condition, I got good news for you. That's, 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 a, flourishing, that's a flourishing reality. Because the work of Jesus is alive in your heart. Is that you? Are you trying to salt and light in abrasive and clueless ways? If you're being persecuted for being obnoxious, then Jesus doesn't celebrate it. He doesn't celebrate it, but he does celebrate it when you're walking in his way and when you're living out salt and light. So we need to be careful. Uh, Some nuances needed there. Maybe a way to close here is this is saying that you can't be a coward but it's not a free pass to run your mouth and to judge others and to just throw truth bombs everywhere you go. 
So, so don't be a coward. But you also can be wise. You don't have to run your mouth every time. You don't have to make sure everybody knows your opinion every time. So you might be receiving more persecution because you're being obnoxious. But if you're receiving no persecution, it might be because you're a coward. It might be because you're not salt of any sort of effectiveness. When Jesus talks about the salt, he says, man, if the salt loses its flavor, then it's it's not for anything good except for to throw it on the path and be trampled on. And what he's talking about there is when we think about salt, we think about little grains of salt that we put on our food or whatever. That's not, that's not the condition of salt. There were no refineries. There were no refineries. They got their salt from the Dead Sea, and it was mixed with all kinds of things, all kinds of powders and gypsum and all, all kinds of stuff. And apparently, the most soluble thing in that powder mix was the actual, what we think of as salt, sodium chloride. And if it got wet, the salt got diluted. It got washed out. And what was left was the same powder, and it looked like what they thought of as salt, but there was no sodium chloride left. It was all washed out. The actual thing that you needed for it to be effective was gone. It was minimized. And Jesus says, don't let that happen to you. Don't don't let your salt get diluted. Don't let your salt get washed out. Feels like a good description of the church in the West, doesn't it? Might feel like a good description of me sometimes. Salt that's been diluted, salt that's been that's been washed out. And if that's your situation, you're not going to receive persecution. And so, like the idea of like you might be receiving persecution because you're being obnoxious, but if you're not receiving any persecution, it might be because either you're washed out or you're afraid. Jesus seems to be saying that the life of a Christian is going to have both attraction and persecution. That there's going to be people drawn to your life as you flavor life, as you preserve things. That the world is going to look at you and say, man, I don't even believe what you believe, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you're part of what's going on around here. I'd like to hear more about that. And then you're going to have the persecution when you actually have the audacity to say what Jesus says. It's love and truth according to the Bible. Think about Jesus' life. Jesus drew the crowds. People gave up their careers, came and followed him. After his death, they traveled far and wide to share the gospel news. Jesus, to this day, is attractional. But Jesus also brings persecution. We experience it to a small degree, but think about Jesus. Jesus wasn't just persecuted, he was killed. So make sure that you pair verses 11 and 12 with verse 16. Verses 11 and 12 say you're going to get persecution, so some will hate you and will persecute you, but at the very same time, if you're salt and light, some will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You hear that? Simultaneously. Verses 11 and 12, you're going to be persecuted. Verse 16, some will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the same response that Jesus had. Jesus shared the gospel and some heard it and came running and some heard it and came with swords. And so we as the people of God, our invitation is not to say, I'll do this if there's no price tag. 
I'll do this only if it brings attraction, only if it brings people that come racing to hear this. No, it's, it's both and, and we can never tell. You'll be shocked at some of the people that are bothered by what you say. You'll be shocked at some of the people that want more of what you say. This is the invitation of being salt and light in the earth. So as we come to communion, we end our service with communion every Sunday, I'm just going to invite you as, you as you wait for your turn to come up. Maybe you need to talk with God a little bit about courage. What does it look like to be salt and light in a way that actually doesn't put your lamp under a, under a basket, that actually puts your lamp up high and lets, lets it be on display, not in obnoxious ways, but in real ways? What does it look like to have courage? Maybe you need to repent for being obnoxious. Maybe you need to repent for living as an angry person who's just mad at, at the culture and mad at your neighbor and mad at the public school and mad at the government. Maybe, maybe you need to recognize, man, part of, part of the invitation here is to actually be flavor in the world, to actually recognize that, yes, it's broken, but there's also beauty here. Maybe as you come, you can, just, you can pray for love for God and love for people a heart that is growing in its longing for things to be made right, for, the, for, for, for your relationship with God to be on fire, for the people that you know to come to saving faith, to be drawn in. So as we come to the table, I invite you to think about those things. Now, this bread represents the body of Jesus broken for us. The cup represents his blood spilled for us. And if he didn't do that, then this stuff is all empty. Uh, but praise God, he did. If our service will be, please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this, uh, these final verses here of this opening section. We thank you for the call to be salt and light, for the fact that we already are salt and light. God, help us not to hide our light. Help us not to uh, dilute our salt. But instead, we actually let it be about the work in the world uh, that you want to do in and through us. Uh, we thank you for the fact that you've invited us to be part of the mission that we're not just uh, saved to sit on the bench, we're not just rescued to, to bide our time, but we're actually part of this preserving, flavoring, revealing work uh, that you want to do in the world. In Jesus' name we pray.